Good morning and good morning. Everyone doing all right? Doing good? Great to see you all. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47. We are continuing, as that video showed, our sermon series on the greatest uh, sermon ever preached, uh, the longest recording teaching of King Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew 5 through 7. Who's been enjoying, have you all been enjoying Sermon on the Mount so far? Oh, man. I've been loving it, and Matthew 6, like if you want to peek ahead, uh, or you want to stay on the edge of your seat, uh, but if you want to peek ahead, Matthew 6 is what we're going to be diving into next week, and there are some gems, absolute gems. I'm really excited to be diving into Matthew 6. So that's where we're at today, and we've been, where we've been at in looking at the Sermon on the Mount is we've been, for the last six weeks or so, looking at the six refrains of Jesus, and we're on the sixth one today. Anyone know what I'm about to say? What's the refrain we've been looking at that Jesus consistently has said? Yeah, you, there you go. Y'all been listening. There you go. Okay. Y'all been helping me do my job, like Rebecca said. Thank you. Uh, so you, Jesus, consistently in the Sermon on the Mount, he will say this, this refrain, six times. We're looking at the sixth one today. You have heard with your ears something that was said about God and his law. Now, I say to you, as the true fulfillment of God's law, what actually the truth is. And what the fulfillment of God's law is. And so Jesus, when he says that, isn't pitting himself against the Old Testament teaching. He's pitting himself against the Pharisaical addition to God's law. They, the scribes and the Pharisees added the Mishnah, which, which were these extra biblical commands that they kind of elevated to the same level as command, the commands of God. But then also they would grossly misinterpret God's law. So sometimes Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament, but what he's getting at is the misinterpretation and misapplication of the Pharisees. The last one today we're going to be looking at is Jesus kind of goes for the jugular and he commands every follower of his to do the impossible apart from the grace of God and the empowerment of the Spirit and to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So uh, I'm going to share my outline with you real quick. We're going to read God's word, pray, and then dive in. Three questions I'm going to ask from the text to frame out our time is this. One, how do you see others with which, with, with which lenses do you view the other, the enemy with? Which lenses do you use? Grace or law? Uh, justice or mercy? Secondly, how do you view God? When you think of God, what comes to mind? When you think of God the Father, what thoughts come to mind? And then lastly, thirdly, and how do others view you? When people see you, what do they see? What do they get? All right, so Matthew 5, 43 through 47, verses on the screen. Sorry, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 48. Uh, here we go. Starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why, Jesus? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I just pray that your heart, Lord God, your heart, your grace, your compassion, your kindness would be revealed to us in the preaching of your word, God. 
Oh, may we not miss your heart, God, for us, your heart for humanity, your heart for the lost, God. May we not miss your heart. We're not here to dissect your word. We're here to get under your word and let it dissect our hearts, God. And so we posture our hearts before you that are so prone and so quick to cancel, to label as enemies, people that you uh, sent your son to die for, that they might be received the gift of salvation, God. Lord, I pray with those hearts, the hearts that are quick to punch back when we're punched and to curse when we're cursed, God, that we bring those hearts to you, Jesus, and we pray that your gospel, the goodness of your grace towards undeserved sinners in Christ Jesus would wreck us in the best sense of the term and that we would realize that in Christ Jesus, now our inheritance is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace ad infinitum not wrath upon wrath, not judgment upon judgment, not condemnation. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would have your way, God. Blow us away. I pray you'd rend the ceiling, speaking in a figurative way, God. And the rays, the warmth, the glow of your love and your grace would shine on your people. And we leave here, Lord God, so gladfully willing to, receive, to, to not just receive and keep to ourselves, but to give to others what you have freely given to us in your son, Jesus. And so come have your way with our hearts. And with your word, Lord Jesus, and I pray that you would be magnified, you would increase, and I would decrease. And all God's people said, amen. All right, looking at the first question here is, how do you view others? With what lenses, grace, gospel, or law, do you view the other? In verse 43, Jesus here is not quoting an Old Testament command, but he's actually, what he's pressing into is a first century ongoing debate about God's commands in the Old Testament, the, the, the foremost being in Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty straightforward, right? Like, love your neighbor as yourself. But what sinful hearts do, and what was a common misunderstanding in certain circles of Judaism, was this interpretation of that Old Testament law. The command to love your neighbor has an equal and opposite command, to hate your enemy. Like, there's a flip side of the coin. Like, if I'm to love my neighbor, then the natural flip side of that coin, then, well, then I, I have to hate God's enemies. I have to hate my enemies. And actually, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see, like, verbatim that certain Jewish communities actually taught that ethic. Love your brothers, hate the other, was kind of how that saying went. And so then, so then, if that's what we think that command means, then the million-dollar question that follows, the, the key question for us to obey God in loving our neighbors and hating everybody else is we have to ask this question, which is, who is my neighbor? Right? I need some labels. I need some categories. I need some boxes. Right? And, and listen, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we all know, hopefully we all know, uh, Jesus, that, that's a response to Jesus getting asked this question. A lawyer comes up to test him. He's got his legal pad out. He's cross-examining Jesus. And Jesus, you know, obviously does what he does with every scribe and Pharisee. He just uh, owns him. And, and, and basically, the, the, anyways, Jesus goes, you know, how do you read the law? Was one of the questions. The, 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 the lawyer comes and asks him, essentially, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the Old Testament. He goes, what does the law say? And, but then Jesus says, how do you read it? And I feel like with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us, hey, hey, you need to read the Old Testament scriptures through the lenses of the gospel, through the lenses I give you. And then the lawyer quotes to Jesus, oh, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, bing, 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 you got it, lawyer. Like, it doesn't, it's not that sarcastic as me, sorry. Uh, but he says, he says, do this and you will live. 
And then the lawyer goes, he just got boxed into a corner because he doesn't want to love people that he doesn't have to love. He wants the neighbor box as small as possible, and he wants the enemy box as big as possible. And he goes, and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus shares a story where uh, the enemy of God's people, a Samaritan, is actually the hero of the story, and the enemy of God's people is actually loving uh, a Jewish man who has been beaten up and left uh, on the side of the road to die. Okay, and that's the context there. So that's kind of the backdrop of this question. It was a question that in the upper echelons of religiosity, the scribes and the Pharisees would articulate. They'd argue about who is my neighbor. Jesus was asked it, and um, it was a million-dollar question. Who is my neighbor? And so the reason that question is asked is because if I want to obey God, then, um, and I have an enemy box and a neighbor box, well, I need categories to place people in when I look at you. And when I come to know you, I have to know whether um, you're my homie or you're my hater, right? And so the lenses that we view people, like anyone, uh, don't raise your hand, I shouldn't be, anyways. I've seen this movie in a long time, but Terminator 2, right? You get the, (laughs) great reference. Uh, uh, Any sci-fi movie where there's a a robot, okay? And you see the robot's perspective, and and the robot will like see a human, and then it'll be like like the backdrop of like height, weight, Likes, dislikes, uh, social security number. You know what I'm saying? You guys tracking with me? Yeah, yeah. So don't we do that as uh, followers of Jesus and sinful humanity as the lenses we view people? We immediately try to assess, hey, where are you at? Like, let me, let me, let me, let me just kind of uh, do a little social media history search here. What are, you, are, we, are we friends or not? What label, what category do you fall into so I know whether or not I am going to love you. And so we constantly dish out these labels in order to cancel others. So let me just ask a few questions. And again, I'm not taking any side. I'm just asking questions. And if you get triggered, that's on you, not me. All right? <laughs> all right. Labels in regards to who you voted for. Notice, I didn't say, I didn't say any names. All right? You're getting triggered. That's on you. What are your thoughts about COVID? Ooh, oh, oh, oh. What are your thoughts about certain movements trending in 2022? And the people in those movements. I'm just asking questions. Better yet, are you a Penguins fan? Because if so, we need to talk. I need to pray for you. Come up for prayer after. All right, just kidding. I'm a diehard Caps fan. If you're a Penguins fan, God says, pray for those who persecute you. So I love you. All right. Um, And what's beautiful about this text, what's beautiful in one fell swoop the king of glory representing the kingdom of heaven breaking into the earth jesus forever rips from his followers any enemy box we could put the other in and he gives us one he gives us one and it's your neighbor your enemy is your neighbor who you're called to love why because that's how god loves his enemies Bottom line is this, when you and I become followers of Jesus, we forever forfeit the right to pick and choose who we get to love. That there's only one set of lenses now to view others, the lenses that God viewed us in his son, in his son. And so the question that we need to be reminded of is uh, not just how we see others, but how did Jesus see us in our sin? What was his response towards us? And I love, I love the calling of Levi, the calling of Matthew in the Gospels. Turn to Mark 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 2. And Levi was a tax collector. And if you know the history of tax collectors in first century Judaism, they were essentially the scum of, of the earth. Nobody 
like them. They were awful human beings. They had a lot of labels thrown at them. Basically, uh, uh, first century Palestine was occupied by Rome. And so uh, in regards to that as well is that Rome uh, horrifically oppressed the people of God, the Israelites. And so tax collectors were actually the servants of Rome and historically were known for abusing their position of power by overtaxing God's people to fill their own pockets and to fill the pockets of the Roman oppressors, okay? So they were not liked at all. They had one label, one box, one category that the Israelites placed tax collectors in, and that is the enemy that God has ordained us to hate, okay? And this is what we see in Mark 2, 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, where? Sitting at the tax booth, he caught him red-handed. And when Jesus sees Levi literally sitting in his sin, what is his response? Does he take a photo? Does he go to run to social media and throw out all the hashtags? Like scum, garbage, TCs are the worst, hashtag this, hashtag that. And like get a movement of how they're destroying the country and the nation. That's not what Jesus says. That's actually not what Jesus sees when he looks at Levi. It's not what he sees. See, what if, what if when Jesus saw Levi at the tax booth in his sin, seating, seated in his little booth of iniquity, maybe, just maybe, Jesus didn't see him sitting there, but saw future Levi sitting with Jesus at his table. And that's what we see in Mark 2.14. And Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed me, it was the kindness of Jesus that led him to repentance, not the slap in the face and the public humiliation. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now watch this. Watch the labels coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Those are in the enemy box. We're to keep our distance and hate them. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, when Jesus looked at us in our sin, he didn't slap. See, here's here's the danger with labels. And I'm not making any statement about how we need to be a people of conviction and truth, but we also need to be a people, like, like, and, and like, there's certain like, movements out there that, that the church needs to speak against and to stand firm in what the Bible clearly teaches. I'm, I'm all for that. We also need not just be a people of conviction. We also need a people of compassion, of compassion, of grace, of kindness, and of love. And when Jesus saw us, he didn't slap a label on us and just stayed on his throne and didn't incarnate and, and dwell among us and die for us. That actually, that, like, like, are you tracking with me? So here, when, we, when we are so incessantly consumed with what tribe do you, what does the other fit in, that's a death sentence we're pronouncing over someone. It's a dead end. We're saying this is who you are, this is who you're always going to be. Think of, you know, said political party or movement or whatever. This is who you are, this is who you're all going to be, and I'm just going to keep my distance. Where's the redemption in that? Where's the hope of, yeah, yeah, they might be there now, but what if Jesus gets a hold of their heart? Their story, Jesus isn't done writing their story. Everyone's in a process. We're all in process. 
And so I heard this said, and it's kind of a, a cliche, but it's so true. We need to stop viewing people just by their history, but, but by their destiny. Not just where they're presently at, but where they could be if God got, grabbed a hold of their heart. That's what we need to start viewing people at. And so the question is, it's not, it's not uh, who is this person right now? It's who can this person become if, man, the grace of God in Christ Jesus by the Spirit just completely and radically transforms their lives. And listen, as long as there's breath in their lungs, destiny can still change. As long as there's breath in their lungs, there's hope. Which means, which means then our punt to what we lean into is redemption and grace rather than, than, than wrath and condemnation. Because what, we are, what we're after is we want redemption. We want destinies changed. We don't want the, the hammer to fall on people because the hammer didn't fall on us. Grace upon grace has fallen on us because the hammer fell on Christ Jesus. And so why would we ever want uh, the hammer to fall on others when we've been shown grace upon grace for, ad infinitum for all eternity, okay? And so it begs the question, why would we ever live this way? Jesus is giving something totally counterculture. Uh, pray for your haters, your persecutors. Love your enemies. Wash their feet. Serve them. Press in. Get to know them. Invite them to your table. The historic ethic of all of mankind has essentially been love me and I love you back. Hate me and I'll hate you back. That's like the primary chief ethic of humanity. That's what Jesus addresses in verses 46 through 47. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do we realize the mafia has that same code of ethics? Like they treat those in their tribe really, really well. And those outside their tribe, they treat very, very poorly. Right? I mean, just to put it simply. And Jesus is saying, if this is how the redeemed of God are going to live, how is it any different than the rest of the world, let alone the mafia? We're called to something far more beautiful. Jesus, again, we saw in this, the, 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 earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke a new identity over his followers. Before he gets into the imperative, he speaks a new identity. He says, you are salt and you are light. So go, go find some decay to, to bring some salt into. Go seek out some darkness to shine brightly. And with your fear, with your, you know, like all, that, all those concerns, just go and be what I've called you to be. But, but you don't keep your distance from decay. You don't keep your uh, distance from darkness. We actually are completely useless if the salt stays in the salt shaker. Um, and so the countercultural ethic Jesus gives, where he roots it, where he camps it, it flows out of the very nature of God. Is what he points us to. We're going to go to next. It comes out of the very nature of God and how, he, and how this God treats his enemies. Okay, so the second thing we're going to look at is how do you and I view God? When you think of God and God the Father, what comes to mind? Condemnation? A sigh of frustration? A scowl? Judgment? Disappointment? Is that what you think? Or when you hear God the Father, do you hear grace and compassion and kindness? Do you see a scowl or do you see a smile of love beaming down on you? Because the bottom line is this, is how you and I view God changes everything about how we treat others. Treat others. Uh, A.W. Tozer has this beautiful quote. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what we see in our text, in order for Jesus to change our view of our enemies, Jesus first has to change our view of God. You tracking with me? 
Before Jesus goes for their hands and their feet, he goes to their mind and their heart. And he says, hey, I need your orthodoxy first. I need your right thinking about God. You have some wrong thinking about God. I need to give you some, some new orthodoxy, some right thinking, which is going to lead to orthopraxy, which is right practice. And your practice is all jacked up because you have a wrong view of who God is. And then Jesus tells us who God is explicitly here. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. That's what he came to do. One of the main things he came to do. And um, let me just draw some of my notes here. And one of the common misconceptions that um, religious people have about God is uh, Pharisees, scribes, and, and us in our legalism and our self-righteousness is, is our, our view of God that we love is, is that God often is a, a, a bloodthirsty God who rains down hellfire on his enemies, right? And the bottom line is this, is we export what we import. And if we believe that God is harsh and cold, and that's his primary ethic, is that he is a God of wrath and of hatred and of violence, then that's what we'll export to others. That's what we're constantly importing to us. That's what we'll give to others. And in utter contrast to that, and we see, and we do know this, in the Old Testament scriptures, we do know that fire falls, and God is a God of justice, and God is a, a just God. He would not be loving if he wasn't. And one of the things we're going to see here, if you're here, you're watching, or you're not a believer here, is this, is that it's actually God's wrath that's not as, as offensive. It's actually his grace that is. It's his grace that is. Because atheists want it one of two ways. So how could God allow all this evil and suffering? How could, he, how could he allow it? How could he be a God of grace and compassion and overlook all this stuff? And then, and then how, could God, how could God punish the wicked? How could he do it? Which one do you want? Which one do you want? And what we're going to see here is in, in, in the grand scope of the, the history of humanity, heaven rains down daily every second, blessing upon blessing upon blessing, far and above percentage-wise than hellfire that falls. Far above far beyond. And that's what Jesus is getting at. I believe, don't take my word for it. I'm just quoting the scriptures here. This is what he says, verse 44 to 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why, Jesus? Why should we do that? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You can be like God. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God sending provision and kindness and sunshine, and fruitfulness of crops, and food on the table, and gladness of heart, both to the redeemed and also to the rapist, I think is, is, is more offensive than his justice falling, and his wrath falling. That's how gracious he is. And when, when Moses begs, cries out to God, says, show me your glory, God says, I'm a God who's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and mercy, and heaven consistently is it's God's common grace, theologians call it, God's common grace, showering heavenly blessings, rain, causing his son, it's his son, his son to shine on both the just and the unjust. His expansive, indiscriminate kindness towards his people and also towards his quote-unquote enemies, it's God's common grace. We're going to ask, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Because ontologically, the preeminent characteristic and attribute of God is that he is a God of love and a God of kindness and of grace. And in his grace to humanity, he carpet bombs us with blessings so that his kindness would lead us to repentance. Again, Acts 14, 17, Romans 2, 4, don't take my word for it. Acts 14, 17, Paul and Barnabas, we just did a whole series on Acts. They're in Lystra, and this is what they say, preaching the gospel. 
Yet God did not leave himself without a witness. God has given humanity who has not heard the proclamation of his gospel witnesses of his heart and his goodness. For God did good by you, did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, God satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. These were pagan idolaters worshiping, I believe it was uh, some random deities in the Greek pantheon in Lystra. Uh, the temple was there, I preached on it last year. Anyways, um, he, and even, even in spite of their idolatry, it's God attributed with satisfying their hearts with gladness and their mouths with food and their stomachs with abundance. And then Romans 2.4 says this, why does God do this? Why does God shower his blessings upon us? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? God is rich in kindness. He's rich in grace. There's a common theme throughout the New Testament scriptures. And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The way I liken it to this, do I have any Amazon primers here? Any Amazon primers? All of you should raise your hands, all right? Take pastoral application. Go be, no, just kidding, don't do that. Um, but my wife and I, we have different accounts, but like, you know, you know how it is, right? When a box comes, you're like, ooh, I, I forgot, maybe I ordered something. It's like a little Christmas, and you, you open it up, and you're like, ah, oh, curtains, Jen ordered it. And, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> But I have, a, I have a family member in my immediate family who, like, occasionally will just, like, like, just send a bunch of gifts to us. Like, these shoes and pants I'm wearing, like, she'll just buy, like, I didn't buy these. So if you see me rolling around in nice clothes, like, I, us- I usually didn't buy them. They were given to me. Okay? And so it's kind of, I think it's similar where all of a sudden God is just showering. I mean, think of that, of close to 8 billion uh, people on the planet earth and every day if there's food in their mouths and food on their table and money in the bank account it's God literally sending them a package saying hey why, why was this because when we open this box we're going who sent this and why did they give it right was it Jen was it me was it my sister who sent this and why did they give it and God's provision is given for a purpose it comes from God his grace every blessing on this side is undeserved gift of God to point us why to point us to his heart his kindness, his patience, his love leading us to repentance. That is who our God is. This is the point Jesus is making. Frederick Bruner says this. And this is, she's shifting here from common grace to God's grace shown to us in the giving of his son. In God's single greatest act of self-disclosure ever, greater even than his continuous acts of creation, common grace, God loved his enemy world so much that he gave it his own son. God, the cross teaches us supremely, is the greatest enemy lover of all time. And that's the point Jesus is making. Hey, people of God, sons and daughters, you want to be a follower of me? Then then when you become adopted into my kingdom, then you need to know that your father is the greatest enemy lover of all time. He lavishes indiscriminate grace and kindness upon even his enemies. Which leads me to my third and last point here is how do others view you and me as followers of Jesus? Like, like, like when we get bumped into, and the, whatever is in the fullness of our hearts, if it's, a, if it's a cup that's full of something, what kind of bubbles out? Is it condemnation? Is it wrath? Or is it grace and mercy and kindness? When you, when you kind of bump into me on social media, what's, come, what's, what's getting posted, right? What are my fingers doing? In traffic, like, like, when we get bumped, what, what wells up? How do others view us? And what's missing in the church today is we have to understand that we no longer just represent our names. Like, like, like I don't represent Nick Mudrazo. I don't even represent the transit church. I represent King Jesus. 
and the community of believers in how I choose to live my life and how I choose to, to love my enemies or not love my enemies. Like, like, we all know that, right? Like, families can have certain reputations, and I have, my last name is Mudrzo, and, and there's certain things about Mudrzo I'm, I'm proud of, right? And I know that as a Mudrzo, I bear that name. So my personal decisions can tell a story about what Mudrzos are like. We all get this, right? Like, like long story short, I, I was, a couple years ago, I was going to make a Taco Bell run. Don't judge me. Uh, I've repented of my ways. But I was looking at the, I was reading reviews for the Taco Bell on, uh, in Kingstown. And if you have time, that's one of the funniest things you can do uh, is look at the reviews for the Kingstown Taco Bell. Anyways, I read the reviews and I ended up not going. Uh, but people had like a, one bad experience with one employee who was wearing a, a, a uniform that said Taco Bell and they canceled the entire chain. Right? You tracking with me? That was just one individual. No, they represent the organization. It's a family business. And so what I'm getting at is this. What I'm getting at is this. Let me find myself in my notes. Boom. Stated differently, adoption as beloved children of God comes with the immediate commission to be his ambassador. There's no other way around it. You can't just claim sonship. You can't claim beloved son and daughter and say, well, I can just do what I want. No. It comes with an immediate call to be the ambassador of the Father. Immediate, immediate. And this is why Jesus says in verse 48, You therefore, my followers, adopted sons and daughters of the living God, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then in verse 45, Jesus says, uh, He goes, so that you might be sons of your Father in heaven by how you love your enemies. Because your Father in heaven is the greatest enemy lover of all time. Now you belong to him. Now you go represent him. Okay, and there's a lot of debate around the perfect and you be perfect. Um, I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of that. I think it's actually really simple. Strive to be like your father. Look to your father. Fall in love with your father. See the fullness of his love shown to you in Christ Jesus. And strive by the power of the spirit to go be that to others. That's what it is, is look to your father. Be like your father. Luke 6, 36, quoting this same text, says this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And then Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, I love this, and I'm slowly wrapping up here. Famous last words. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think this is a beautiful articulation of this reality. First, in Ephesians 5, 1, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, beloved Children, like, like none of us are under the tyranny of the constant disappointment of the Heavenly Father anymore. We're in, the, we're in the shadow of his grace. We live in the light of his grace. He's beaming affection and adoration. It says beloved children, not children of wrath, right? Children of grace and kindness. When we look to the heavens, we don't see a scowl and constant disappointment. We see a smile and kindness and gratitude, not gratitude, uh, affection and grace. You're beloved. You're beloved. And the issue is, 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 do we believe that? And when we see that, when we see that kindness, and we believe it, and we receive it, then we begin to give it to others. But if we're living, and, and my prayer with the guys this morning at 9, we pray, if you ever want to rumble with us before the service at 9 to pray up, was, Lord, would you break off condemnation? Would you break off any scowling face that is not true of who you are in your nature? Would you break it off the people of God today? And then the command is now imitate, in Ephesians 5, imitate the love of your Father, walk in love. And all that to say is God is never calling us in this text to do something he has not already done for his enemies and what he's done for us. 
He's already modeled it to us. He's already done it to the nth degree. He's lavished grace and mercy and love upon us, and he's saying, just don't let it stop with you. Don't let it stop with you. You keep that grace. You keep that good time. You keep it going. You keep it going. Because um, at the end of the day, the question is not as much this. is It's not as much how do others see you. It's who do they see when they see you. It's who do they see. Who are you revealing in situations uh, of persecution and hatred that are coming against you. And our calling is a beautiful calling of Jesus. He's saying, go show the world what your merciful father is really like. There's a ton of fake news out there about uh, who God is and what he's like. Go show the world what your God is really like. And I'll call the band up. Band, you can come forward. And we're kind of running short on time here. But I'll just share this. I'm going to condense it. I'm going to share just one application. Is Jesus here? We might be asking, okay, Nick, this is great. How do we do this? Like, this is an act of God for us. In, in, like, in, like, it's impossible. What I'm getting at is to sincerely and genuinely love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of God. You, you can't do it in your sinful flesh. Everything in your sinful flesh wants to fight back and to strike back. And you need the, the regeneration, the new birth, and you also need the empowerment of the Spirit to walk this out. It's dependency upon God. That's what you need to live this out. And so that's why Jesus points us to pray first, right? Jesus says, love your enemies, and then do what? Pray for those who persecute you. What's prayer? It's an invitation to come to your father. Why? Why would you come to your father? Because you, you're, you're dependent. You need help. And that's the revelation of prayer often that Jesus gives us is come like a kid, asking for what you need. Paul Miller, I've said this a thousand times. So I'll say it again. Prayer can be defined as helplessness. The key to a better praying life is not more discipline. It's more desperation in your life. When you realize the very things God has called you to do that you can't do, you get on your face and you say, God, I need help. Help me out. Open up doors. And so what Jesus is inviting us, he says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Weep for them. Pound the pavement in your prayer closet for those that are coming against you. And prayer is relationship. It's an invitation to get close to the the heartbeat of God. And the best way that we can be like somebody, you guys tracking with me? The best way that we can uh, imitate somebody is just by getting close to them. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't represent somebody I don't know. And when I spend time with someone on a consistent basis in prayer, their passion, their heart, their desires become mine. And I begin to have something I didn't have where there was once hatred. Now I see God, Jesus, the mediator, his, his nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet, him weeping for my quote-unquote enemies that he, he died for just as much as he died for me. Okay? And so a quick application for this before I conclude with John 1 would be this, is pull out your phone, open your note app, and write down your hit list. Right? Uh, maybe lock your phone so nobody sees this list. Maybe I'm on it. Okay, pray for me. Um, but uh, write out people groups, movements, communities. At the, like hold nothing back where there's hatred in your heart and where we've been uh, transformed to the patterns of this world by political pundits and we've spent more time with political pundits and, and, and adopted their heart and their hatred towards our enemies, rather than going to our Father and saying, Jesus, here's the list. Let me kneel at your nail-scarred feet and let you speak into this. And what do you have to say about this? And coming just as you are, the real you has to meet the real God and saying, Lord, you know as well as I do that I have hatred in my heart. 
and come before him saying, God changed me. You make that list and you bring it to the throne of the king and you bow before him and you lay it down. You lay, lay down lordship over your life and you say, Jesus, help me love these people. Maybe it's a specific person you're working with, a boss who's difficult to work with, whoever it is, Jesus uh, is inviting you to run to him for help. Run to him for help because it is impossible. It's impossible to do this without his help. So let's do that. Let's be people of, uh, at the transit church who are just, in, just constantly interceding for those that desperately need Jesus, not viewing the other by their history, but by their destiny. What could they become if Jesus grabs a hold of their heart? So I'll conclude with John 1, 14 through 16. I love this, I love this, and I'll wrap up with this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus' incarnation. And we have seen his glory, glory as, the only, as of the only son from the father. Watch this, watch this. Full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, for from his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. And what John, the apostle John here clearly shows us is that Jesus was full of something. If his heart was a glass that was full of a, of a substance and you kind of bumped into Jesus, something came out. Something overflowed from Jesus. Was it fullness of wrath, condemnation, judgment, wrath upon wrath? No, it's crystal clear. Jesus was full of grace. Full of grace and truth. Well, okay, okay, full of truth. Truth about what? Truth about who God is and what he's like. That's the truth. That's the truth. In, in Colossians 1, it says that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning that if you have any questions about what the nature and character of God is like, you look to Jesus. Because in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, his glory on display. You want to know what God the Father is like? You look at his son who was full of grace. When you bumped him, what overflowed was grace and kindness and compassion to the extent that not just when Jesus was bumped into or slighted did grace and compassion and mercy flow out of him, but when he was humiliated and when he was beaten and when he was scourged, and when he was spit upon, and when he was crucified, what flowed out of Jesus? Luke 22, 32 through 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Sorry, 23. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Can you imagine the, just even the, the, the physical pain Jesus is in in this moment? The agony he's in in this moment. And we're not even talking about the wrath of God being poured out as the sins are placed upon him, but the, the physical pain that Jesus is in. And what flows out of Jesus? What comes out of his heart? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's the heart of God towards his enemies. Jesus praying for the very ones who are putting him to death nailing him to a cross. And because Jesus prayed that prayer to the Father, because of the fullness of his grace, what we're celebrating this morning is that our inheritance has forever changed. And going back to John 1.16, if you can throw John 1.16 on the screen. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. The God we serve is full of grace. And from that fullness, we now have fullness of his grace as our inheritance forever. And the greatest invitation, the greatest blessing of our lives as undeserved recipients 
of the grace of God is to go show that to others. Wrath upon wrath upon wrath upon wrath upon wrath upon wrath fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins so that today we celebrate that grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I could go here to eternity, to eternity is now our inheritance. And so let's go to him in prayer and then we'll uh, respond in a few ways. Oh God, I just pray by the Spirit you'd open up our eyes and open up our hearts to truly believe and to know the height and the depths of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Wherever there's hardness, wherever there's coldness, wherever there's a scowl or condemnation superimposed upon your face, would you remove that now? And I pray by your Spirit that you would just melt hearts of stone today and help us to realize what our inheritance is, God. It's grace upon grace, not wrath upon wrath. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus anymore. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are a God of love, you are a God of mercy, that, that when we were your enemies and we, we, when we were seated in the, 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 the place of scoffers and the, the den of iniquity, that you didn't just see us there and leave us there, but you pressed in and you saw for the joy that was set before you what redemption could look like when your grace lands on our hearts when your grace lands in our hearts. So would you do that this morning? Would you remind us of our inheritance? Would, we lift up, would you lift up our chins to see what is right and true about you, Father? And I pray, God, give us opportunities. Give us your heart for the quote-unquote enemies. Give us a heart, your heart for the lost, God. And give us opportunities to love and to serve and to shine brightly uh, to others, Lord God, and to represent you rightly, realizing that we don't just represent ourselves, we represent our God, our good God, our merciful, compassionate God. So come have your way, Lord God. We, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we turn to you, Lord God. And we ask God, by the empowerment of your spirit, under your grace, that we would walk this out this week, leading here today. In Jesus' name, amen.